0: So at the Royal Hospital School and through Digital Resilience UK we've been supporting schools to continue to deliver content and curriculum in the run-up to formal exams despite the coronavirus threat.
1: Hi
2: everyone, welcome to the EdTech podcast and this series episode of the VoxTech podcast Learning Continued which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. My name is Sophie Bailey, and you can follow online at hashtag VotTechPodcast and at Podcast EdTech and UFI Trust on Twitter. Now, lifelong learning wallets, individual learning allowances, even some forms of universal basic income designed to allow financial wiggle room for adult learning... There are plenty of policy ideas about how to support continual learning in our citizenry. But what about in the workplace? In this episode, we hear about one organisation trying to embed personal learning budgets into the workplace and draw together the best learning resources in one playlist. You'll hear from Rajib Day, founder and CEO at Learnably, in a throwback to an interview last year. But before all that, this week's listener feature, which has easily been our most popular to date. How is the coronavirus showcasing the pros and cons of online learning and remote working? The coronavirus is adjusting our working and learning experiences in a relatively short space of time. Somewhere around the world, schools are closing, companies are pulling out of conferences and events, and workers from Japan to Silicon Valley, from Panasonic to Twitter, Are getting to grips or ramping up their remote working practices. Outside of the global health implications of the virus, what are the implications for online learning and remote working, and will they be long lasting? Who is at risk of falling through the gaps during this time when physical learning environments close, and how are new approaches being resourced? How can EdTech help without being seen to chase ambulances or advertise as a cure? We asked you your thoughts on the issue and thank you so much for coming back to us with examples and thoughts from Beijing to Singapore to English schools and Welsh universities. Here we go.
3: One important thing to remember with the coronavirus is that the world isn't on pause. Life goes on and business continues as usual. This will open up new challenges and hopefully these challenges will bring forward a number of opportunities for us to innovate and challenge the normal ways of working. It will be really interesting to see what comes from it. I think a number of classroom-only vendors in particular are going to struggle. Now is the time for them to adapt or die. As with bad click-next e-learning, we will see a lot of content delivered in a format which it wasn't designed for. It would be poor, to start with at least. And this may or may not be a problem. To run something as it is and see what needs changing and how it needs changing it might actually be a more agile way of working rather than trying to try and predict what needs to change in an unfamiliar environment. The user experience might start poor but it's only going to get better. I also think it will bring to the table a number of accessibility challenges. How Are we going to make this content accessible for people with impairments and to areas with poor bandwidth? So I think it's a really exciting opportunity despite all the negativity that's going to surround it. Sorry.
0: So at the Royal Hospital School and through Digital Resilience UK, we've been supporting schools to continue to deliver content and curriculum in the run-up to formal exams despite the coronavirus threat. Um, what we've been looking at mainly is how we can um, provide teachers with systems to narrate over PowerPoints, to quiz their students, to give face-to-face contact via video messaging um, and essentially to still keep the normal timetable going despite the fact that Many of our students will be off-site, and lots of our remote teachers will also be um, off-site. Obviously, we hope this isn't going to happen, but what we're trying to do is build confidence and staff that we can cope with this, that we've got um, one-to-one devices, that we've got a really good 365 uh, Microsoft platform, and... um, teams to help us deliver it and in fact we're almost seeing it as an opportunity to really push what we can do with um teams and how we can drive forward our strategic plan quicker um as a result of this potential um uh, problem i suppose it's coming in the next few months so um yeah we're trying to see it as a positive thing we are going to roll out really um an enhanced training programme over the next week and then we're going to put in place some protocols and home school licence agreements and data protection agreements um, so that hopefully our students can continue to learn even though uh, they're not going to be here in school Um, yeah, hope that's helpful
4: Hi, Sophie. Tim Stirrup here. The coronavirus and education remind me of snow because for many years we have a couple of days of heavy snow and each year the papers and social media are full of complaints that we aren't prepared, asking why more salt wasn't available or commenting how well Siberia copes with snow. Then the snow melts, the sledge and the shovel sellers put their goods back and we all carry on as normal. So two things. Firstly, the number of times we have a virus of this potential severity is low. So the time, effort and money needed to introduce more online or remote working may just not be there for many schools or businesses. Secondly, the motivation. Such change would be reactive and for long term effective change, much better for it to be proactive. If schools and businesses look at the change from a proactive stance, recognising the other benefits other than just what happens in a crisis, then maybe there's more chance of long term impact. I'm reminded of Charles Handy's sigmoid curve. It's better to make changes when you're on the up than at the bottom of a dip.
5: Hello, everyone. I'm Ali from ATA, responsible for international business. ATA is an education technology company based in Beijing. ATA is the largest computer-based testing and online learning services provider in China. During the period of coronavirus outbreak, ATA has decided to offer our cloud-based vocational training online services to the public for free. Such services are used by companies and organizations which may not have any technologies and online resources to offer skills training to their staff online. Since our offer launched on February 5th, the total registered organizations reached 7,560 with 3,000-plus classes innovated for over 150,000 online learners. In addition, we also introduced the mini-app called QianMian, which is a remote interview platform connecting job seekers and recruiters online. Under the current situations, remote interviews best serve the needs of organizations that require the interviews to be no-contact, convenient, and efficient. Ada believes that online learning and remote interviews are the major trends in the education and assessment industry, and will continue to grow rapidly in the future.
1: I think that using a tool like a student response system for distance learning, in this environment, can have a lot of value. Um, I have a use case because we've did a remote session with the university. In Singapore, which was in lockdown, so all the participants were presented um, assessment through a link, so they were able to ask questions to the presenter, and the presenter was able to assess their understanding of what it was t- teaching. And the tool that was using uh, that was used during the session was Wooklet. And um, the same strategy is actually now being used in some universities in Italy with all club also. So I think it's a great use case. It brings up a lot of new ways of teaching and learning in distance. So
6: it's Martin Hamilton from martinh.net. What the coronavirus really shows for me is we're not used to anything more than, let's call it a snow day, The idea that you might have to close school, close workplaces for, as we've seen in China, perhaps for anything up to a month. We're not ready for that. We're not remotely prepared for that. The idea that everything that we do normally has to shut down. It's not just a case of pausing. We're not taking the afternoon off. We're really going to stop what we're doing that profoundly challenges a lot of the assumptions that we make about how society works, how education works, how work works itself. And I think the most profound thing in education is this model of the the school as as a factory, almost, a production line churning kids out who've acquired various bits of knowledge and skills. What happens when the conveyor belt has to be shut down what happens when the factory closes? And Although we've got all these fantastic tools that can be used anywhere in the world, all these um, Google Docs, these Microsoft uh, Teams groups, uh, all of that good stuff, how used to using them outside the school setting are we? And I think the answer in most cases is not very much.
7: Hi, Sophie, it's Neil Mosley here. Um, yeah, I've been watching on and read a number of articles on this. Um I think there's pros and cons. Um I think uh, it gets online education on more people's agenda in a university context um, when it wouldn't have already uh, otherwise been uh, the case. I think it forces us to consider other approaches than traditional campus-based education, which I think still really holds sway, um, and it, it can kind of foster that deeper reflection on on flexible and online learning and act as a catalyst to those kind of discussions. I think exposure for, for educators is a really important, thing as well. Often we talk about educators not necessarily always reflecting on their practice. And there are many that are reluctant or cynical about online education. And so this forces them maybe to engage with that. And and in my experience that's always a positive thing. Um, I think some cons could be it drives universities into partnerships, which can be good or bad. Bad examples can really set universities back. And there's examples of those. I also worry a little bit about the unintended consequences of quickly scaling online provision. Um, worry that that might set a benchmark of of low to kind of reasonable quality online education. And I think we need to raise the the quality of online education. I think
2: we need more, but better. Online and remote working isn't something for the future of work, but it's something that's happening now. Um, Personally, for me, I've been able to create the Gender Equality Collective, write a book that Harvest published, um, and I'm even doing a doctorate now online. Uh, I don't need to leave the house. Uh, I can work the hours that I want to just by using the technologies that are there. This is a way that will continue to work. And I think particularly at this time where people might be forced into it, they will be able to also see the opportunities that are there for them.
8: So I was wondering uh, whether there may be some unintended or unexpected consequences of the sort of renewed interest in uh, remote uh, or homeschooling using online learning platforms or online tutoring, um, as a result of the uh, COVID nineteen coronavirus um, concerns at the moment. Um, principally, what I'm talking about is something that um, you know McKinsey uh, and then Natalie Pearson called deliverology, the idea that education was something that could be delivered. Perhaps like milk, uh, like DHL, um, but the delivery of of content, and subject mastery, which um, the inculcation of facts and procedures um, that could, and then we could then measure that um, through tests and examinations that would would test the performance of both the learner ability to remember those things, and of course the teacher to impart them. Um, now, if it could be if it could be shown that that can be done um, without the school building. Um, and without, indeed, a, a teacher, I mean, presumably the idea with instruction-based learning, you could replace the teacher with an AI. Certainly technocrats and bureaucrats seem to think that um, because it's much easier to measure. And if it's easy to measure, it's easy to automate. Um, and, you know, we look at the investment in, in education, about two-thirds of that investment globally of $6 trillion is is teachers and infrastructure. Um, I, I'm just wondering, maybe I'm cynic in me, is whether there will be organizations that will think about, hey, we could save some money here.
9: Hi, Sophie. This is Tom Hooper from Third Space Learning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we've been providing online one-to-one teaching to primary schools for the last few years um, and have worked with over 2,000 schools um, in the UK. Um, I thought it would be helpful to share our three top tips for how to deliver effective online learning. Um number one, um, and this may sound obvious, but a a, an equipment check. Um it's a particularly when working with parents, it's amazing how many or how many varieties of equipment there are at home which can get in the way of of good connection in a classroom, in a virtual classroom. Uh, Number two would be don't bother using video, just use audio. Uh, Video tends to get in the way of those of us who have poor internet connections. Um, and number three would be do remember that um, content you use in a virtual classroom needs to be simpler than that which you use in your classroom because virtual classrooms get cluttered with all the drawing on the screen, etc. Um, we are obviously working with um, all the schools that uh, are currently using Third Space to help advise um, SLT on, on the various contingency plans they're putting in place um and of course we're happy to share that with other schools and SLTs should they be interested um anyway hopefully it will not come to that okay bye everyone so flash
10: academy is a mobile app teaching english for students that don't have english as a first language the platform teaches from 45 different home languages and uh, we were reached out to by a stranded teacher in Boston, um, who works at Britannica School in Shanghai and was unable to get back into the country like many of her colleagues. Um, pupils were um, at home, unable to attend school. We demonstrated Flash Academy and within 24 hours, students were up and running. They were being assigned lessons by teachers uh, from as far afield as Vietnam and Sri Lanka and, and Boston. and um, And, and and teachers could see how um, students were progressing uh, and teachers and students were competing um, with live leaderboards. So they could, they could actually see each other's progress, even though they weren't at school together. Um, We're also working with um, the British school of Milan, obviously in Northern Italy. Um, And I think this is a a great example of where EdTech can now play an enormous role in, in helping with a challenge like this, where, Students aren't necessarily able to be physically located with one another, but, uh, but can still learn
11: uh, and can still be uh, supported by teachers no matter where they are. Hi, Sophie. We're fortunate that the teacher is not the only source of knowledge available today. Uh, a number of ed tech companies have really started opening up their systems. Uh, We're seeing some class grading tools that uh, some companies have started offering for those affected by the coronavirus. Uh, And we're also seeing some professional educational content being made available for free for those who are affected. I think the biggest challenge is going to be related to motivation. And what I mean is that you know, there are really great massive open online courses like uh, MIT and Harvard's AI course that they're already available today, but they have really low completion rates, like 3%. And so I'm really worried about the success of these online initiatives without the presence of peers or the teacher. And this is made even more difficult with these cramped spaces that are available. Uh, Often you can't find a place that's quiet for listening or recording or participating. And that's making it even harder to engage in any kind of online discussions.
12: Hi, Mark Anderson here ICT evangelist, and Thank you, Sophie. Do you know what ninety seconds is hard. This is not my fifth go, uh, but you 've asked us to think about online learning, tutoring, and remote working in in sort of response to uh, the potential issues of closures and, and whatnot around coronavirus. Taking the learning aspect, first of all, continuity of learning for students is really important, particularly for those who are working towards examinations. And learning online is different to learning um, in the classroom. You know, lots of uh, schools and colleges have blended learning programmes, which is great, but using only one particular type of tool can be quite difficult. And are teachers and students prepared for the sorts of um, pedagogies that are going to help to make those things impactful? Are they thinking about uh, how they motivate students by making real world connections? Are they thinking about um, having a regular presence, uh, albeit virtually? Um, are you going to um, sort of make clear the expectations around what's being done? How do you ensure good behaviour for learning if you're not there as a teacher? Um, sharing learning objectives really clearly giving that prompt feedback which is always really important in the classroom or elsewhere but how are you going to ensure all these things are thought about and made prevalent Um, and particularly you know if your students don't have access and what tools can we use to ensure that there's a community still there despite all this isolation so much to think about so many opportunities thanks Soph
2: Thank you again to our listener contributors who this week were Michael Osborne or at Mike Aussie, a user experience driven developer and uh, one of the learning technologies 30 under 30. Hamish Mack at Mr. Macfeed, a director of digital strategy at the Royal Hospital School. Tim Stirrup at Tim Stirrup, director of 3V5 Limited. Ali Gow at ATA Online Education a vocational training online services provider based out of Beijing. Nancy Dibkale at Nancy underscore Wuclap, who is customer service success manager at Wuclap. Martin Hamilton at Martin underscore Hamilton from martinh.net. Neil Mosley at Neil Mosley 5, digital learning designer at Cardiff University. Nick Ponsford at Nicole Ponsford, who is with the GC Collective. Graham Brown Martin at Graham BM from Learning Reimagined. Tom Hooper at Third Space Tweet, founder and CEO of Third Space Learning. VJ Lingia at Flash Academy underscore HQ, CEO of Flash Academy. Dr. Edward C at New Tech at Dr. ET and Mark Anderson at ICT Evangelist. Phew! Don't forget, if you ever want to vent your thoughts on Ed or Tech or anything in between, including your thoughts on podcast episodes which have gone out, or where you are and how you're listening, just go to speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. Okay, on to this week's feature interview with more food for thought on how to keep skilled up during our working lives. So I'm delighted today to connect with Rajib Day, uh, who's MBE, founder and CEO at Learnably. And the description of Learnably is that we unleash brilliance at work by managing all the professional development needs of your employees, connecting them to the very best learning and development opportunities and tracking the ROI on L&D activities. Prior to Learnably, Rajib founded Internships.com, a portal that connects students and graduates to work placements In over 7,000 startups and SMEs and which developed innovative corporate talent programs for clients such as Telefonica, Santander and Havas for which he was named the O2X Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2009 and the youngest recipient of the Queen's Award for Enterprise Promotion in 2013. Rajib is also the co-founder of Startup Britain, a national entrepreneurship campaign supported by the government. It was launched by Prime Minister of the United Kingdom David Cameron in March 2011. He served as a trustee of Unlimited, the foundation for social entrepreneurs, for over ten years, and was recognised as one of the thousand most influential people in London by the Evening Standard. Finally, he graduated with first-class honours in economics and management from the University of Oxford in 2008 and was appointed as the world's youngest young global leader at 26 by the World Economic Forum in 2012. So hi Rajib, welcome.
13: Hi Sophie, thanks, great to be with you.
2: So that's quite an impressive resume. My first question was, you graduated with a first-class honours from Oxford, so how important was your degree and how important were other factors such as personal learner networks or other things that got you to that point and to where you are today?
13: So I suppose it's important to recognise that whilst I started at Oxford, when I joined in 2004, I actually started my first venture, which was a social enterprise for school kids called Student Voice around giving school students a voice in their education, which I started when I was 17. And my time at Oxford was really an opportunity for me to kind of connect with um, other kind of entrepreneurial people. I really got involved with the Entrepreneur Society there, Oxford Entrepreneurs, and then kind of became the president and ran that full time for a year between my second and third year. So I'd say that really was more instrumental in supporting me in my career growth than necessarily the degree itself. I think it's what the university provided me in terms of access to great people, um, to peers, um, and then the platform through running a society like Oxford Entrepreneurs, where I was able to connect with a well-known entrepreneurs, the Dragons from Dragon's Den, uh, with people like, you know, Stelios or Dyson and uh, Alan Sugar, and these people were all speakers at the society. Um, I'd say that was a really great stepping stone. And it also gave me the inspiration for launching my second venture, internships. Uh, through my experiences at university so i would say that oxford you know was a great experience for me it was more about the opportunities that were made available rather than necessarily the the academic side of the degree itself
2: okay that's that's very interesting and where did this sort of entrepreneurial spirit come from in the first place
13: uh it's hard to tell because it's not necessary that i come from a family of, of entrepreneurs so my dad's a doctor my sister's a doctor. I don't necessarily have entrepreneurs in the family, but even as a doctor, so my dad set up his own GP surgery. So I suppose he'd had to be entrepreneurial, but he would never call himself an entrepreneur. You know, you could say that maybe it's somewhere in in my genes or blood, but I think yeah. also it's actually the support and the confidence that my family kind of instilled in myself. So it was it was the understanding that if I wanted to do something, I could do it and that my family would back me. Um, And it was also um, having the support of kind of other people. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, my first venture was when I was 17, a social enterprise for school kids, and I got a grant from Unlimited, the financial for Social Entrepreneurs, uh, back then. And it was, uh, you know, a £5,000 grant, but it was more symbolic than Mm. that. It was a sense that someone believed in me and my idea, which was around giving school students a voice in their education. And it was that really kind of changed my career path, I would say, because, you know, I was doing my A levels at the time, obviously kind of busy with that. And I reckon, had I not got that grant, I, I'm not sure I would have continued working on it. So obviously, you don't know, but I, I do think that played a really Important role in kind of kickstarting my entrepreneurial career, and that was one of the reasons that I joined the board of Unlimited and, and was on the board for over ten years to support the organisation that supported me. So I'd say that you know it was a mixture of that family support and kind of belief they had, and then external organisations that that I was fortunate to kind of connect with that that gave me that confidence to pursue my my ideas.
2: And did you sort of have to fight your corner to say if you want to go into business or entrepreneurship or or was that kind of, you know, it sounds like you had like a really supportive family on, on that one, on that front. I know sometimes people are like, you know, it's quite risky or, you know, will you be OK if you pursue that?
13: Yeah, I mean, obviously, all, all kind of parents, family are kind of concerned and, you know, want to look out for you and your best. And I would say, though, that they've always said, you know, do what makes you happy, do as long as you're doing good, that doesn't really matter. And, you know, I'd done internships myself at a Boston Consulting Group and the Bank of England whilst I was at the university. And I realised that, you know, that wasn't really the path for me whilst they're great organisations. And mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself really working for someone and I wanted to you know, do my own thing and, and come with my own ideas.
2: Yeah, this is why I'm so excited to talk to you because so much of, of that resonates.
13: Absolutely. And, and to be honest, that was very much the inspiration behind setting up internships, my
3: mm-hmm. adventure,
13: I was at university because I was frustrated that the only jobs you were exposed to, and you know, this was back in t- like 2004, were the, the big banks, the consultancy firms and, and the corporate milk ground. Um and There was no exposure to the world of startups and mm-hmm. SMEs. And um, there was no concept of entrepreneurship as a career path. And so when I graduated in 2008, it was the start of the graduate unemployment crisis. Lehman Brothers just crashed. Um, and, you know, lots of really talented people were not walking into their, you know, expected corporate jobs. And mm. I thought, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of showcase that you know there's another world out there. And you can not only, you know, take a job, but you can make a job and be an entrepreneur. Or you can work in an entrepreneurial environment um, like a startup. So yeah that you know that totally resonates uh, well, in terms of what you're
2: saying. I think what's interesting about that is you know internships.com if i've got it right was about 14 years ago and i th- i feel like this idea of sort of more mentor based learning or sort of organizations which are mixing a sort of work placement, mentor connection to experts perhaps coaching apprenticeships and work skills they're all sort of coming of age so you were obviously thinking about this 14 years ago and I just wondered if was that slightly ahead of the curve and if that conversation is now starting to feel like it's a bit easier
13: yeah absolutely I would say that you know when when I launched internships there was no real concept of working in a startup what are these kind of small companies who are they and and in a way it's kind of why at the time we did generate quite a lot of buzz and awareness and because it was different and people were, you know, interested in looking for something. And now, you know, it's very much become quite the norm, I would say. Actually, it's 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 trendy, it's acceptable um, to go work in a startup or do your own thing. There are a whole range of programs available for graduates to just, you know, go into programs like Entrepreneur First or things like New Entrepreneurs Foundation and there are all these things which didn't exist back then, which is fantastic. And to be honest, it was it was the reason I moved on from internships to focus on learnably, because the thing that drives me is solving problems. And when I was 17, that was about recognizing that school students didn't, as customers didn't have a voice in their education. Whilst at university it was that they were not exposed to, you know, these kind of startup and SME opportunities. And now as you know in in the world of work it's how do you equip people with the skills they need for the future so you know one of the things i say is that as i grow up my ventures grow up with me mm. and i kind of scratch my own itch so, yeah yeah yeah
2: i uh, can so, totally so, yeah. see that it's like you it's like you're uh, taking one for the team of your generation of your... exactly <laughs> <laughs> well so when did you set up learnably then
13: so learnably kind of officially got going i'd say about 3 years ago but it was long time kind of in the making so I'd say uh, a few years before that, I started thinking, okay, what's next? I really felt that we, uh, my initial premise and aim for internships was to change culture. And, you know, with stuff like Startup Britain and and, and the general change in attitude towards startups and and entrepreneurship and tech city and all these things, I felt felt that, you know, that had very much been achieved. Mm. So for me, it was kind of what's next? What's the next big thing we can solve? And and so I I started looking at the learning and development space, you know, for a few years before that, trialing different kind of concepts and ideas, and then really landed on Learnably and and kind of had the first kind of minimum viable product, so to speak, nearly three years ago. And yeah, so it was really a journey of discovery, trying things, seeing what works, what doesn't work, testing it out, um, getting feedback and, and taking it from there, really.
2: And so for our listeners, can you kind of describe in a nutshell what Learnably is?
13: Yeah, so Learnably is a professional development platform. So we help people connect to the very best professional development experiences um, based on what they like to want to learn and how they like to learn. So we are multimodal in nature. So it could be coaching courses, conferences, books, podcasts, articles, free and paid for but also then helping employees apply that learning at work. So it's about, we have personal development plans built into the platform, which help you track your development and help managers be better managers and supporting you uh, on your development journey, because it's all too often we see people uh, and platforms focus on just the acquisition of knowledge and less so on the application. Mm. We're very much trying to shift that narrative and say, actually, if you think about learning and development, there's too much focus on the L and not enough on the D. And we need to help people to actually then apply that, to reflect and to support them. So we start with a curated marketplace. Our employers often give their employees a learning budget to spend, and they can spend that how they like on the platform with approvals from managers. And it's a very much a more bottom-up approach to learning and development and, and a more inspiring and engaging, I would say, approach than your typical compliance-driven top-down platforms or approaches that that, that are in the market
2: which is interesting because if you take the lessons from the teacher development trust and then apply them to the sort of corporate or workplace sector then you know we know that if sort of professional development is top down it rarely connects whereas you know if it's sourced and identified by in that case teachers then they feel much more motivated to engage with it and uh, you know and it has a better impact on their learning. So I would imagine there's probably synergies across both of those sectors as well.
13: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's kind of why we're seeing you know month to month engagement of, of over 50% on our platform of users coming back, logging in, mm. uh, engaging with the platform, whereas you know industry averages are like 10 to 20% at best. So we very much believe in this idea of empowering the employee to own their own development where possible to equip them with their own budget to spend uh, and then benefit from the network effect of knowing what your peers are doing and and getting inspiration in a more real-time way because if there's something you want to do that's not on learnably you can request it and add it to the platform so new things are being added every day so we know you know what are other data scientists or product managers doing so it's not just about the organization and what the business just wants it's also about you know what are my peers doing what are mm-hmm. the trends in mm-hmm. industry so that's the kind of of emotion and the the kind of trends that we're kind of plugging into.
2: And so I like that idea because it sort of taps into, you know, if you're a cyclist, then you like to go on Strava because you're like, oh, what routes are my friends doing? Or, you know, how much have they done? And I guess it's similar in in, in the workplace, you're sort of thinking, oh, look, uh, Kevin over there, he's done these three courses. And that looks quite interesting. Maybe I should do that. And has that sort of yeah, knock so, on effect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like the idea that you were talking about, you know, we should concentrate more on development. Because I my kind of feeling with resources and learning resources is there's an absolute, you know, wealth of resources. From personal experience in times of lifelong learning, I'm always like, Oh, maybe I'll do a course on philosophy and ethics or this or that. And, you know, I start and it's not for lack of courses out there, it's how do you create the structure Um, And the discipline and the time in your day, if it's for sort of workplace development to actually do that. So, I wondered if among your clients, which sort of have the best success in terms of employer engagement and learning, if there are any kind of consensus points about how they go about creating that time or allowing that development to take place.
13: Yeah, so that's a really great question. So, I think in some cases, we've seen employees create kind of protected time. So, there'll be a slot, whether it be every week on a Friday, which is kind of protected time for learning. Um, Other people have kind of rituals where they would encourage you to like employees to run lunch and learns and create this kind of peer-to-peer kind of learning approach. But I think one of the most important things is to engage the managers in this. So there's a lot of research which shows that if managers don't have regular developmental conversations, it leads to poor levels of employee engagement. That has a knock-in effect on attrition, And so actually, in one-to-ones, we would say development conversations should happen kind of frequently and regularly. But one of the problems is that managers don't have the full insights into what are the development goals of my Mm. direct reports, my teams, because they might do a personal development plan at the beginning of the year that sits in some performance management system, but actually doesn't get reviewed, is not in any way connected to any of the Mm. learning and development systems, uh, and then gets forgotten about and it becomes an afterthought that you might do again in your six monthly check-in or your annual appraisal, but that's not good enough. And I think in order to help employees to actually develop, there's an element of accountability, obviously a self-accountability, but also the manager taking a more proactive interest in supporting you, knowing what are your goals, what are you working towards? And so yeah. some of the ways that we've been doing it, that is through the dynamic personal development plans and also slack integrations and slack bots which open up conversations between managers and their and their employees around development goals and ensuring that you feel that there is someone looking out for you as well and that actually it is accepted and okay to be learning whilst at work Mm -hmm. that's that's very much an expectation of the business that you do continuously learn and grow
2: very very interesting i wondered when you mentioned the multimodal i'm glad that you've got podcasts in there as well But, you know, different types of resources, whether you also see a particular uptake in, you know, whether it's more videos or more podcasts or whether you see, you know, any trends in terms of what people are learning
13: through. So what's really fascinating for us is how popular just traditional books are. Mm. So many people and and this is not actually a generational thing. So Mm. you would you would think that, oh, okay the millennial generation or, or Gen Z would be all doing online learning and, and the older kind of workforce would be doing the more kind of face-to-face. That, that's really not playing out in our uh, mm. kind of data. We're seeing that actually all generations like you know physical kind of books. They're all doing a mm. lot of books. Um, I suppose there's an element of being able to then take that and do that, you know, in your own time, on your commute, whatever it might be, but also face-to-face. So there is, you know, this big need and um, desire to want to connect and to get and coaching is also really popular and and on the rise. I think people are recognising that they need uh, sometimes external support to, mm-hmm. to kind of address some some kind of issues. So that's also an interesting kind of form of of development that we're seeing that that's on the rise.
2: And I saw that you done some coaching learning as well, and I just wondered. We'll have both sort of employers and learners and every other uh, type of person involved in changing education and learning listening in. So, were there any kind of points that you could share with those listeners on coaching?
13: Yeah, I mean, I I took a very a uh, short course, day course on kind of coaching for managers, and and really the, the principles are, are, are quite simple. It, it's basically to ensure that you are not solutionizing for your kind of colleagues, you're posing the right questions, giving them the space to think and reflect. And you're not really, as a coach, meant to answer anything, you're really actually meant to facilitate and create an environment where the employee is empowered to come up with their own answers. And I think it's also creating that safe space where your colleagues feel that they can share things with you that that kind of on their mind so, I, it's, it's a, I think it's a useful skill set because I think it's very easy to kind of go into a routine of just doing a status check with people mm-hmm. and like, what have you done? And how's that gone? And why haven't you done this? And that generally kind of in a one to one. Whereas actually having a more coaching-based or developmental conversation is important and to do that kind of regularly. So I think whether you get an external coach, which is totally independent from the organisation, which has definitely its merits too, because I do think from an element of being truly vulnerable and authentic, there's an element where your colleagues might feel more comfortable sharing with an external coach. But I think all managers should be equipped with, Coaching skill sets to know that some of the basics uh, around how to uh, ask questions and, and some of the, the kind of coaching approaches in, in during one to ones.
2: Well, on, on that front, so I saw that, and I'm not sure if he still is, but Stefan Tomer, former global head of learning at Google, is on your advisory board.
13: Yes, he is. Um,
2: So I just wondered what he was like and, and, you know, what we might learn from him in thinking about how companies are going about their learning and development strategies.
13: Yeah, so obviously, so Stefan's highly engaged and and he's a great supporter of of Learnably. In fact, he's he's doing an event with us uh, next week looking and we've entitled it Performance and Development, uh, a balancing act. And this is something that we're doing a lot of thinking around. And, and you know, he's, he's playing a role in helping us shape this thinking. It's like, what's the trade-off? Is there a trade-off between performance and development? Because too many times we see that performance conversations take precedent mm. in an organization and the, the platforms and tools that companies use for performance often are conflated with development. So, you know, you've got your action plan for the year or for the quarter, and then your development goals are, are, the, are an afterthought. We would argue, and actually there's been lots of interesting research from EY. Um, they did a report which came out last year, which actually highlights the fact that actually by separating development conversations from performance conversations, employees feel more, they're, they're able to be more vulnerable and authentic about their needs and their goals. There's there's all sorts of Gallup reports, which point to the fact that Having regular development conversations leads to greater levels of, of engagement and retention. And so this is something that we've been talking to Stefan a lot about, which is how do you ensure that companies, obviously performance is super important, but they create, ensure that they balance that and do not forget and underestimate the importance of developmental conversations and how you can actually have drive performance through development. And rather than it being something that you just you know, bash people in the head with saying, you know, why aren't you doing this? And what about achieving these targets? And then the other thing that he is quite an expert on is OKR, so objectives and key results. And this is something very popular within the tech world, I suppose, as a way of bringing greater alignment with teams. And it's something that we have been using internally as well at Learnably. And he's Google have been really at the forefront of of kind of pioneering that. So he does a lot of work with companies in creating these OKR programs. And in a way, our personal development plans that we have in the platform mimic kind of OKR frameworks of having your kind of objectives and, and then your key results. But in our case, we call them goals and focus kind of areas. Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting. Stefan obviously comes from you know, a large corporate background. Mm-hmm. We have a whole range of clients from predominantly a lot of startup and SME clients but now we're, we're bringing on board more enterprise mm. um, he has a wealth of experience and, and insights that have been very uh, useful for us.
2: Yeah it's just so interesting from the point of view of the complexity of a company of that size and how to have that shared sense of identity but allow for like totally individual you know effort and ambition aspiration is really interesting and then the point that you made about, you know, bringing on enterprise, I thought that was be a great place to dig into because I guess there's broadly speaking quite crudely, there's, you know, you've got your sort of companies that are doing their digital transformation and sort of trying to think about how to bring their team along in terms of that journey. But then there are companies which perhaps are a bit more hands-on, you know, maybe they're not in the tech sector, but they, they're thinking about how to use tech to train um, some of their employees, whether those are new employees or people who need to reskill. And I'm hoping to also interview someone from the Royal Mail who uses VR to help their employees deal with how to negotiate aggressive dogs. Um, okay. So <laughs> those are quite random examples, but there's a, a huge program of like reskilling organizations. So that they are sort of fit for the 21st century and they don't become the kind of blockbusters or the HMVs or whatever you want to call it. But then there's also, you know, that kind of really hands on training piece as well. So, you know, again, in healthcare, you know, maybe it's simulation for sort of surgical techniques and that kind of thing. And I just wondered how you're seeing those examples play out. And maybe that's about new technologies coming onto the platform as well.
13: Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are there are lots of examples of companies going through kind of digital transformation and using learning as a tool to drive that. So, we're actually working with a large publisher, and it's very much part of their digital transformation agenda to create this culture of lifelong learning, to create this mm. sense of ownership and responsibility and empowerment. And so, uh, it's great to see companies recognise the role uh, of of, of learning and, and new technology solutions to kind of help uh, achieve that you know there's there's examples of how you know, Accenture has been a great example of, of them making a commitment to upskill and reskill their workforce who are at risk of of automation mm. and obviously there's a huge business case for doing so because they're also consultants that are advising other people on it so you know they should practice what they preach mm. and 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 it's great to see the investments they're making AT&T is obviously a well-cited example in the US of, of upskilling you know, hundreds and thousands of their uh, employees to make them prepared for the future of work. And I think it, it is this trade-off between the long long term and the medium term and then the, the here and now. And so what do I need you to learn immediately for your job? And then what do we need you, people to be doing for the, for the medium and long term? And I think it's important that companies don't neglect the long term because ultimately as you say they will become irrelevant and and defunct if if they do ignore that and uh, there is that kind of trade-off and then there are new tools and technologies that companies uh, can be using and so we are actually part of a incubation program with Mercer the HR consultancy company Uh, so we're one of six companies in their future of work incubation program Mm. and there's another company in that which does do Kind of VR for kind of sexual harassment and kind of bullying in the workplace. Kind of, uh, it's a US company, and and actually one of the things that, that's going in their favour is that in certain states in the US, that kind of training is mandatory. So companies mm. having to do this and ensure all of their employees are aware of this. So you know that that's definitely kind of working in their favour. I wouldn't necessarily say it is mainstream as yet. I think there's kind of issues around kind of cost and and just generally kind of uh, adoption of technology in enterprise can be quite slow. They're not necessarily always the the first movers on these things. I mean, it's good to see innovation taking place, and and companies are are slowly kind of catching up.
2: And that's an interesting one on making things mandatory because if I if it's the same example that you mentioned with AT and T, if it's the one with Udacity. Yes. Uh, so I remember Yuval Harari speaking on this and and he sort of positioned it as slightly terrifying because it was the idea that you know you, you have 10 skills you have to use your own time to upskill in the ones that are lacking each year and if you don't then they'll give you a nice severance package but ultimately you know it's up to you to to use that platform and it was very much a mandatory thing and I just wondered you know there's that balance between allowing it to be self-selected but does it happen because i know that some people give out you know training budgets and if you're in a culture where teams are just like well i'm fine i don't really want to use the budget but then also if it becomes too top down you know that's a kind of can become a bit of a dystopia as well so it's like getting that balance where it's still empowering you i think
13: absolutely so so we work a lot with companies that give kind of training budgets to individuals and teams and then help them mm. spend it. We, we've often found that these budgets go unspent because people don't know what to do with it. They don't know what the best things are. They don't, sometimes they forget about it and there's no kind of system around that. But I think it is an interesting kind of balance because I think for a lot of employees, it's important that they recognise that the job that they're doing today uh, will change and they may not exist and they, they may not exist at all on the extreme end or that at least a portion of it may not exist mm. and I think it's important that, that message gets through to them because yes there is a, a, a you know a, a set of people that will just say you know I'm fine and keep your head down until it's then too late so I think it is really important that companies get that balance right of of supporting people to recognize how changes might affect them, and then giving them the option because I, I don't think it's a bad thing per se. Saying, "Look, you know, the job you're doing right now, there's this job is not going to exist in our company. We're going to automate it. We're going to outsource it. Whatever it might be that you're doing, mm. so you have an option now. You can move sideways into these things, but or, or move and like upskill, reskill yourself completely, or you know, if you if you if that doesn't work for you, then obviously." you will need to leave. Uh, and, 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 and as long as they are supported uh, in that and given you know, their severance package or whatever, mm. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because ultimately the most important thing is giving people the choice. And then it's a choice whether they take that on because it can be quite daunting to kind of upskill and reskill yourself if, if you've been out of education mm. for a long time. But I think it's also helping people recognise that you don't all have to become a coder So, you know, as a as a PA in a business, there's scope for you to become a project manager because there's a lot of overlapping skill sets between those two things. And it doesn't necessarily need you to become a coder in the process. There are maybe certain things that you need to to pick up, maybe some Prince2 training or whatever it might be. But I think if you help people see the degree of overlap between their skills today and the potential options and don't make it mandatory that, okay. you must just do this, as long as people are still given that agency and choice, then I think that's fine.
2: And what do you think about sort of more government led ideas around or state led concepts of each individual citizen being given a sort of lifelong learning budget?
13: So I'm all in favour of that. I mean, that's very much uh, aligned to our model and approach at Learnably, where every employee gets their own budget. And so I, I definitely think that's a good idea. I think at a governmental level, so actually, kind of in Singapore, they've they've yeah. got a similar kind of approach to this. Uh, there needs to be a way to support people to know what's best. So, as you as we as you said before, there's so much content out there, but how do you curate it? How do you know what's best? And so, at learnably, we spend a lot of time on the curation, using kind of industry experts. We have over 150 industry experts, but also using our kind of data and, and algorithms to work out what are people looking at what are they recommending, what are they buying, what's the feedback loop. So I think if a programme like that were to exist here in the UK, the government would need to think very carefully about the way it's kind of delivered, how people access this, closing the feedback loop so that when people do something, you know, we capture, you know, how effective is it? Because one of the big issues about lifelong learning and professional development is that there is no quality control. So anyone can be a coach, Mm. anyone can be a consultant or a trainer, uh, and that's partly why i you know I set up Lona b in the first instance was to provide that element of curation and support and and that would be a major consideration if if the government were to roll out a scheme like that here in the u k
2: so one trend that seems to be sticking around is this idea of more people becoming freelancers or working for themselves and I wondered if you know part of that is driven by the feeling of being frustrated or slowed down in the sort of world of traditional employed work um and from my own experience i know that at a certain point in my career i just didn't feel i was doing i was paying myself i was paying uh, independently to do a lot of professional development so whether that was around sort of various forms of content development because i found that interesting and i could see that that's where things were going which sort of led me on to being interested in podcasting and so on. And so I just wondered, you know, if you thought that was a potential trigger for people leaving, but also with that new bulk of freelancers, people that are independently working who also need to keep upskilled and reskilled, whether they will also be a, a kind of customer base for Learnably as well.
13: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There is a project that we're looking at, at right at the moment with, with, uh, a major staffing agency around how we can uh, support the, the freelance and, and gig working economy on upskilling and, and reskilling themselves because we have to be aware that these people often are not invested in because they don't necessarily have a permanent employer it's not necessarily in the employer's interest to pay for these people to be upskilled and reskilled if they're not going to stay with them and they're just you know temporary kind of workers and so the onus then becomes on that gig worker, on the freelancer to really upskill themselves, recognizing that it's an investment in themselves. So doing so is going to help them secure a better paid job, more opportunities. And like you've explained yourself, you you kind of saw the trends and and therefore decided to kind of take these courses. So I think then the onus is on kind of companies like us to help people connect to the best things for them, the things that are going to boost their chances of kind of securing this kind of employment. And then just going back to your original point around this as a trend, I think you know pe- this is a part of people feeling they want more flexibility, they, mm. they want that kind of autonomy. Obviously, there are the downsides of it. There's a lack of security in this area. Um, you don't have you know the paid for holidays and, and and necessarily the pension and, and whatnot that you would get. But it, it is a trade off, and I think particularly the, the younger generations. Are happy to to take that risk for the benefits of, of the flexibility and the freedom it gives them and the autonomy and and really to be their own P and L and say look I am I, I'm a, a multi-skilled person I have a portfolio of skills and I'm going to use them and you know that variety is also mm. I can be a photographer in the evening for gigs I can be a, a salesperson in the daytime I can be you know I can you know maybe be a barista uh sometimes at the weekend you know whatever I want there is there's no need to conform to just
2: one you need to do some barista training down in Devon (laughs) it's terrible (laughs) 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 having me from London is yeah spoilt for choice there okay uh final questions then so if I understand correctly I think you had a recent round of investment uh from frontline ventures so I just wondered yeah, what's next for learnably? Is it more investment? Is it sort of reaching out to, to new user groups? What's kind of on your radar for the next six months?
13: So we are in talks with with investors around uh, an outround investment. That's really to to kind of fund our expansion into the enterprise market. We've started to onboard some large enterprise mm. clients and also look we're starting to get increasing interest from kind of international markets as well so a number of our uk clients are, are requesting us to uh, expand into new territories so we need to kind of scale up the team uh, make you know a continuous invest in, in product so you know next six months will be very exciting pretty busy and you know, ever evolving
2: and then finally so what resources would you recommend for our listeners so we always say you know if you've if there are any people that help shape how you think or books that you return to or articles that you love then yeah anything our listeners can go off and and do some further reading or listening around
13: yeah so i would say there is an interesting book called true north by bill george and that i think is a, a good one so he's a he's a harvard professor uh, and he's been in business for many years and that really helps you to understand your own true north like where are you headed mm. and What's your purpose in life and what makes you tick? And I think it's really important that people get connected to that early on. So that it really helps drive, drive your own decisions around your career and where you want to go. And then in the world of learning and development, I've been really inspired by a book called An Everyone Culture. And it talks about deliberately developmental organisations. And again, it's, it's a group of Harvard academics that have researched three different businesses, very different businesses in very different sectors, a hedge fund, a, a kind of a property a real estate kind of company, and then a tech company called NextJump. And each of them put development at the heart of what they do in a in a very extreme way, I would say, mm. but it's actually inspiring. And so I've done a lot of work and spent a lot of time with NextJump. They have an office here in the UK. Um, they have these open academies where you can go and observe what they do, work with them for a few days. They, and they're very open about sharing their their knowledge and their kind of insights. Um, and I'd highly recommend if, if you have the chance to come and spend some mm. time with them at their kind of academies. Uh, they have this no fire policy where they believe that they don't need to fire people, they can develop them. Uh, they have really interesting kind of setups mm. uh, around kind of mentoring. They've got a very young kind of workforce that they, they develop and, uh, and kind of upskill. Um, so I think that book is fascinating, um, and particularly as a company that's all about professional development. I think there's a lot of food for thought around how businesses can become really developmental in their nature
2: fantastic so that's next jump is the
13: next jump is the name of the company okay. and the book is called an everyone culture
2: An everyone culture well rajib thank you so much for your time today it's been brilliant
13: thank you so appreciate
9: it
2: that's all for this week's episode if you enjoyed our listener feature on the impact of coronavirus check out our show notes where we list a number of useful articles mentioned that help with guidance on school college and uni closures and tools to assist with online learning if you want to help build an online marketplace of vocational learning tools and technology go to ufi.co.uk forward slash voctech essentials where there are some exciting developments going on And if you enjoyed this week's episode, feel free to rate and review wherever you listen. That's all for now. Thanks for subscribing and listening. Bye bye.